morning or afternoon, everyone, depending on when you are listening. This is the second Market Insights podcast. This is the voice of Jay Sosic, aka Blades Analytic, on Twitter. Um, I am joined by the same team as last week. Again, we are all very much grateful for all the listeners last week, um, and we hope that we're going to get even more this week. So please do continue to share and subscribe and, and pour in those questions. Um, I'll let the guys introduce themselves for those who didn't listen in last week or, or didn't catch their names. We will, uh, we'll go. Well, I've said age before, but we'll actually go with beauty this time. So we'll go with Andy McGregor first. Smart choice as usual, there, Jay. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, yeah, it's me again, Andy McGregor, aka El Pavotti FTBL on Twitter. And uh, you know, what can I say about that? You know, he introduced me as the most beautiful. It's probably not quite true, but thank you very much. And I'll let I'll let Tim tell you more about himself. Well, I'm very flattered you came to me next there. I was worried I was going to be bottom of the pile, but unfortunately, Gavin's got that honour. Um, my name's Tim Keach, known as Stock Bunching on Twitter. And uh, yes, looking forward to another podcast. I always knew that Nicholas Sturgeon was right when it came to um, independence. I think this podcast has just reiterated <laughs> my belief that I should, that Scotland and I should separate from the rest of the UK after this <laughs> personal attack on my lips. You've had your chance <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think when the general public hears this, they'll they'll understand my outrage and, and why we should have another vote for independence. Oh, and I, I guess actually, uh, my name's Gavin Miller, and I run Pure Fitba on Twitter. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, and uh, yes, looking forward to this episode today. Gav's clearly also a political activist. Um, so, what's this topic about today? Um, obviously, we are recruitment uh, specialist as a company. Um, we hope we kind of conveyed that last week in, in a general overview of who we are, what we do, and, and some of the questions. So we thought we'd nail in on some more specific topics in the upcoming weeks. Today's topic is recruiting for different styles, teams, and leagues. Um, it's a question that I think is probably the most important question in scouting and recruitment, really, when you're making that kind of final choice for that that short list, that target list, is can this player transition from one team, one system, one style of play, one coach, or even one league? And can they transition to another league, for example, the Premier League, the Championship, uh, the Scottish Premier League? What are the caveats that come with that? What do we look for with our eyes? What do we look for in the data? So that's what we're going we're gonna to touch on today. Um, so I think what we'll do is we'll have a nice general overview. We've got some list of questions and a bit of a scenario-based one as well that we've come up with. So I think I'll I'll pass it to the floor um, on on a first thought. So who wants to kick off with with let's say styles? Let's look at styles first. So who wants to kick off with talking about how we look at transitioning a player from one style to another style of team? What what, what are we looking for in the data in the the video, guys? I'll I'll, I'll jump in here. Uh, so. This is a loaded question, really, and there's probably a lot of different variables that I could add to it, but I'll try and be as brief as possible. Obviously, when we think of styles, you know, we have different styles, whether it be like Liverpool style, which obviously is 4 3 3, relatively high press, and it used to be much more high press than it is now. Obviously, there are a lot of vertical passing, a lot of, a lot of switching the flanks. So, you obviously got to look at players within that, within that sort of framework. I think, though, Obviously, as an outside looking in, without speaking to Jürgen Klopp or Michael Edwards, for example, it's very hard to sort of understand exactly what they want in players. Obviously, I can make my assumptions by watching them or understanding what the players are. But I think people have got to think first about how, you know, the communication is key when you try to build these player profiles, which is what we'll go into in a second. This player profiles, obviously, is what they want for players in each different position. And obviously, that's what when we work with clients, that's what they give us, and that's how we recruit recruit for them or look for players for them. Yeah, and I'd say you also have to look for what players can't do as well as what they can do. So if you're recruiting for Liverpool, you're you're going to need an athlete. If they're not going to be fast enough to play in the system, you can rule them out regardless of how good they are on the ball. So as long as looking for the positives about what players can do, you do have to consider the negatives as well. Okay, so on, on that point, Tim. What what we're obviously a, 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 we absolutely do the video scouting and recruitment solutions company. But what what would you say starting based filtering that data driven focus that we are expertise at? What what are you looking for? So what kind of data avenues? What kind of things can we go down? Not metrics, but what things can we do to say we think this player could fit this team because stylistically he can do these things that match up with your team? What kind of things can we do? Is there any tools or anything like that? 
We've got, yeah, we've obviously got a comprehensive data set and obviously the video as well. From the data point of view, I think you've got to be looking at what the current incumbents of that position do. So if you're a high volume passing team, I wouldn't be looking to bring in a player necessarily with very, very low passing stats. We'd still consider them because I think last week we mentioned players transitioning from like Rotherham to West Brom and they play different styles of football. But if I'm looking for a midfielder for a high volume pass team, I'm going to want someone who's got good ball retention, good volume of passing, good forward passing, if that's part of the style. Basically, you just kind of have to pick out the key characteristics and match them up with the style of the team you're recruiting to. But also always keep an open mind, as we always talk about, players in the wrong system for them. And I think it's different probably if you're recruiting at the elite levels where you're looking for a precise fit into a precise, well-known pattern of play. Or if you're recruiting for a smaller team who's probably got a much larger pool of players they could recruit from and you're finding players who have got the potential to adapt. And that's probably slightly easier to do at a more forgiving level. Gav, as a as a, a fellow, well, as a fellow lover of football that's not always played on the floor like me, um, you have a very a specific team up there, in two, well, two specific teams in Celtic and Rangers, especially when, when Brendan Rodgers was at Celtic. But I think it's fair to say Stephen Gerrard has a very particular system. So with yourself... Um, and obviously that Celtic system is the two big teams up there. What, what do you think stylistically? So is there anything outside of the data that you're looking at for that, that Scottish factor? So not just Celtic and Rangers, including every club, but, you know, we talk of those two as the two biggest clubs up there. So what, what are you looking at from a stylistic point of view that somebody has to have to play in the Scottish League? So I think for Scotland specifically, it's a, it's a really good question, Jay. There's been some, you know, really technical players come to Scotland and have struggled, I think. Our game is super physical, um, as is obviously most of the EFL. And I think that you need to have a certain character strength of it and, and resilience, sorry, when it comes to someone that's just going to, you know, kick you or leave an elbow in. That, our, our Scottish football is still like that. And, you know, it is getting better, but you need to have the resilience to overcome these sort of moments. So w- when I'm watching players, I like to see how they react when they get, you know, a really bad tackle or they get someone coming over the top of them and, and does that you know put them out of the game it's a bit of an intangible it's not easy to you know uh, quantify but it's something that you can build up a picture of over time and I, I think that you know an example of um, that not working is Charlie Masonda from Chelsea who came up on loan to Celtic and he, he scored a, a really important goal against Zenit St. Petersburg in the Europa League um, but in the actual Scottish Premiership he struggled he wasn't physically ready for the you know the challenges that come in in the Scottish game, especially when you know Rangers and Celtic have most of the ball. You're going to see the opponents get frustrated, and, and you're probably they're more likely to you know leave leave a foot in or come down harder or um, you know just do that sort of dirtier side of the game against Rangers and Celtic as it's viewed as one of the possible ways where you could get a positive result um, against a superior side. So I think for me that's something that. I think it's quite hard, and and I guess I'll, I'll pass it back to to you, Jay. How would you try and quantify that, if possible? So that's interesting. Um, the reason I wanted to come to you is because from from obviously I, I watch a lot of well a lot of football everywhere, but a lot of EFL football especially. Um, and, and one of the things that we have done at Market, um, which has been led by our, our main model man Matt Lawrence, is um, we've looked at leagues around Europe as, as well as domestically, and we've tried to match up which leagues, for example, have similar traits. So, for example, for, for anyone listening, a little pop quiz, um, we've looked at leagues around Europe in terms of that that constant one for centre-backs, which is aerial duels. There's probably a, a misguided conception that domestically British teams will face more aerial duels, especially in the lower leagues and, and up in Scotland. Well, we've mapped the data um, from every league that's available, for example, um, on Scout, And what we found was actually centre-backs in the Czech Republic have as much activity heading the ball as defenders do in the championship. So we're not saying that you would go and sign a centre-back from the Czech Republic, but certainly from one data point, which is aerial duels, which is quite a big one for centre-backs, especially in the championship or lower, the Czech Republic is actually a league which matches up with that. Now, there's a lot of leagues that, that do that with one metric. It's obviously finding that across the board. But certainly, if you look at areas that stylistically match up with what you're trying to do, that is that is a good start from a data point. Now we're not saying again that you go to the Czech Republic. There's a lot of context that goes in that. 
but that's where the data can be used on a stylistic point of view. Um, Andy, one question there, I think, because I've gone to Scotland, not, not for Gav, we've kind of gone into leagues now, so nations transitioning. So we see a lot of players coming to the Premier League, um, you know, a lot of foreign guys, a lot of European guys. What what would you say is the main differences between recruiting for different nations? So a nation to a nation, France to England, Germany to England, vice versa. What what kind of things are you looking for in the data and on the video? The, the easiest example I would say is probably you know in the most obvious way would be Holland to to the Premier League. You know, obviously there's, there's a very stark difference now. If you look at physicality, and I think Tim spoke about this before, and the fact that generally centre backs and forwards are smaller generally in Holland than they are here. So obviously when a, a, a tall or bigger striker is having success in Holland, when they come here, they haven't got that physical advantage that they once had. So there's a, there's a, there's a tough sort of... There's, there's things you can look at in terms of physical data, that, that, that being one. Obviously, when you, I think the, the, you know in terms of data, data can be quite broad in terms of now and these things down. Obviously, you're, you're looking at attributes when you watch the video so you could be looking at you know speed of thought how quick how they deal with pressure because one thing we look for especially in the you know the leagues that we recruit for is how players deal well under pressure because if you're recruiting for teams in scotland you're recruiting for teams in league one or the championship or even the premier league it's very intense style of play so you need players who can get the ball out of the feet quickly and make quick decisions and you can deal with a bit of physicality now obviously a lot of that comes from watching players in terms of data obviously players you know Obviously, players who can you know who can make quick decisions, you'll see that in terms of creative players, and when you watch them, if you look at defenders again, it depends which league they come from. It's quite a broad question, really, and there's so many different variables. It's quite, it's quite hard to say really with what exactly you, you would look for. It varies between league. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think I think what's I think what's key, I, and I, just because I'm gonna I'm actually gonna ask Tim on that very point. Um, I think what's key is. What you've touched on there is you can look at the data profile and if the data profile is good, the data profile is good. It doesn't really matter what league it's in to start with. It gives you an initial filter to say this player is doing this well in this league. And that's across a you know, broad range of metrics. From there, you can dive in deeper into it. If you do have league models, if you do have that ability to video scout like we do and watch and, and look for those more intangibles, not quite touched on, or, you know, on, unless it's very advanced data. But one thing there that you did say, which is really interesting, is about, you know, it very much depends on position as well. Um, and I think one, one, uh, and it's not to single out a footballer at all, there's positive and negative more, but one, one interesting player I think is referenced a lot and it's referenced by this man a lot is Ibrahim Sangare, um, who's currently playing for Toulouse in France. Now, to, for me, Sangare is a really good topic of conversation for this because I think it depends on how much you've watched him as to what you might see. But I know Tim's watched a lot of him. So what what would you say, Tim, is something that you'd look for? If you were scouting Sangari for a Premier League club, what, what would you say you're looking for to see if he could transition to, to the Premier League? Well, Sangari is a very interesting one because he kind of burst onto the scene last year. And I think last summer, probably a lot of people like us and football clubs were looking at him thinking, yeah, he's, he's shown a lot of promise um, this year, I have to say, having watched him quite a lot, he's dropped off a, a couple of levels since last year. Awful team is in, which obviously does have a massive impact, particularly on young midfielders, um, with the ball kind of bypassing the midfield and generally just a, a complete lack of uh, continuity in the lineup at Toulouse. But for him, I'd say a midfielder like Sangari, you're looking at defensive duels, particularly. In data, and last year he was really high on defensive activity. He's a tall player. He's got long legs. He's kind of your stereotypical kind of powerful athlete in the midfield. But it, he also showed last year he could play a lot of decent forward passes. That's dropped off quite a lot this year because of the lack of options up front. But I think you'd be looking at yeah, how active is he? Because obviously the Premier League's physical, but League League One's very physical as well. So the fact he's shown that he can play in a top five league and cope physically and has that reasonable touch and technique in midfield as well, I think you look at him and you think he could do a decent job in the Premier League. Now, whether he'll be a top five Premier League player, I've got my slight concerns. But I think when you're looking at leagues like France, you're fairly confident about the transition. If he was a player in Switzerland, you'd be looking at him thinking, well, 
I don't know quite how well that translates. There's obviously been Zakaria and people like that have have come in and done brilliantly in Germany. And the kind of Switzerland to Germany transition is is something that's quite common. But when we've looked at Switzerland to England, it's kind of been a failure after failure as direct kind of entrance to the league. So, yeah, it's interesting. And I think there's a lot of work that can be done on looking at the physicality of leagues. Andy mentioned uh, an article I did in the past that was kind of looking just a basic power ratio. So height divided by weight and trying to, or weight divided by height and trying to work out how how powerful players are and the type of, type of players you face every week. And I think if you show you can do it in a physical league, you can transition to any league. But if you've only ever played in a league with fairly weak players, then it's probably an unanswered question about how well you'll step up. Yeah. That's, that's 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 really interesting, actually, on the, the weight-height ratio. Obviously, you know, you're not saying use that all the time because you're going to miss your N'Golo Kante's if you do sometimes. But if you're looking at league, you know, opposition-faced, um, that, that's a really interesting way to look at someone who's playing in that kind of athletic league. Um, and it's a novel way to, to think outside of the box, I think, as well, if you don't have the, the physical data for the sprints that, you know, the accelerations. Defensive duels is, is, is an interesting one because it can highlight that, but it can also highlight leagues where, frankly, the touch on the ball isn't as good as others and hence there's a lot more duels. So there's obviously context. I mean, I think, you know, we've answered quite specific questions on this and, and we're going to go into some specific questions later. But I think broadly speaking, we all agree, I'm sure, that any kind of recruitment that goes on domestically, internationally, what it may, whatever it may be, it, it has to come down to a, a goal-orientated club philosophy. And what I mean by that is the club must be aligned on what they're doing. We see it with Liverpool, we see it with we see it with others. You know, there's less data driven examples. Obviously, Brentford are a data driven example, but there's others. Preston in the Championship have a fantastic recruitment strategy. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't pretend to know the in and outs of Preston, but you can see it's pretty much not data driven. They sign domestic good young players from the UK and Ireland, but they have a great record because they have an aligned philosophy. What they do is is they have a certain criteria that those players must hit from a physical, technical, Hello? and mental perspective. And as long as a club has a philosophy. Hello? And signs to that philosophy, you are increasing the chances of transition being successful, regardless of where it's from. We've looked, as Tim said, we've looked at the data points. We understand where market successes and fails have been previous. But again, it comes down to the individual themselves, doesn't it? You know, those individuals that have come from Switzerland straight into the Premier League might not have been the right time or the best players at that time for them. So I think, you know, it has to come down to an aligned club philosophy. And I'm sure we're going to get onto that with a, a specific club question shortly. But I, I think that's the key for me. You can seriously limit the risk of transition failing or, or not quite being as, as easy as it should be by making sure that that player is coming into a team that's going to play the style of football that player can suit and that you know that the teammates around them are going to be able to interact with them and build those patterns because it's something that player has the skill set to do. Um, I think I think Gav, you have a, a specific question to challenge us on this, don't you? Yeah. So um, we look at recruitment uh, for clubs, and we we try and, like you mentioned there, we we want to see clubs working with a cohesive sort of philosophy from top to bottom. An example of a club that maybe doesn't have that uh, continuity would be Newcastle and the Premier League. It looks like there's a bit of disconnect between style. Um, sign-ins, uh, the manager, the sporting director, um, so Steve Bruce and Lee Charnley, and then you've got uh, Rafa Benitez before. Um, uh, there's definitely been a bit of a a want there for something um, to be more in line with developing the actual club moving forward. And as a Newcastle fan, it really it really does frustrate me because I think everyone knows that Newcastle could be a a massive club, so. I position to to you guys if you could make or I position three players to to Newcastle. Um, so how would they fit? What do you think of them? But also, I wanted to sort of understand from you guys what would you do to try and develop Newcastle moving forward. Um, so let's let's assume that Steve Bruce stays in charge. Let's not you know put him out the window because actually Newcastle you know their style might not be. The most pleasing to watch, but they're pretty successful in terms of, you know, they're 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 quite comfortably, you know, um, mid table in the Premier League. They don't look like they're going to go down. Uh, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with football. But first of all, let's 
let's talk about uh, Tim. So give me your take on what would be your basic steps to try and take Newcastle forward before I position the, the three players to you guys and we can see what you think about those players. Okay, well, it's, it's really interesting, Newcastle. And it's, I think one of the things we've learnt since we've kind of worked in the industry rather than just as fans looking in from the outside is that you never really know from the outside what's going on behind the scenes. So to for people to say, Steve Bruce has got to go is the first step. Well, we, we really don't know the kind of constraints he's been working under, what kind of strategy has been in place for actually getting players into the squad. Has he had has he had the full say? Has it been a slightly split process with other people bringing players in? It's really difficult to say. So yeah, we will we'll we'll start with the assumption that Steve Bruce is given the chance to to put forward his argument about how he wants to play football. Um, the type of thing we generally do with clubs is we would start with what we call a squad score system. So that's really just a way we've put together of working out a coherent strategy for a football club. So what we do is we list 25 players, the most kind of the core of the squad, so 25 players. We then list what they're earning and how long is on their contract. And then there's a subjective stage where we rate the players to how well they fit the proposed style of play. So with Newcastle, you look at maybe the way we would think Steve Bruce, based on his previous experience, would like to play. And we look at the players in the squad at his disposal. And we can kind of rank those players as to whether they fit his preferred style of play or not. So with the the current team, and you look at the names linked with them, the likes of James Rodriguez and Philip Coutinho and people, I don't see them as natural fits in what I would consider to be a Steve Bruce normal style of play, which would probably be slightly more direct. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. And I also think that solidity is massively underrated, particularly when clubs are taken over by rich owners. The, The temptation is to bring in a marquee striker. And I think football is a game of weakest links. I think there was a book by Chris Anderson called The Numbers Game, and they did a lot of research into teams. And basically, are you better to add a star player on top of the squad or are you better to slightly upgrade the weaker players? And the data showed that upgrading weakest players first had a much bigger impact than bringing in an extra kind of cherry on top of the cake type signing. Um, So with someone like Newcastle, basically you take where they are now, where they want to go under their defined style of play, which players suit it, and then pick out the kind of the weakest links or the massively overpaid players who'd want to move out because they are on big wages and don't suit it. So with Steve Bruce, I think you're looking at um, where would you improve the solidity of the squad, but also where's the threat come from in his type of system. So I think with the names that you suggested, Gav, there was there was quite a good, I don't know if you want to take them through the names next, but I think there was a good solidity and kind of sensibleness to all the suggestions you made. Yeah, so for for the listeners, uh, the three names that I picked off with, I think I, was, I want to come to you first, uh, Jay. I, I recommended that Newcastle should look at, ready for this butchering of his name, but uh, Eberichi Eze from QPR. Jay, as you know, the... Uh, the amount of EFL that you watch, how would you feel about that as a potential target for Newcastle? I think it's really important, again, just to echo what Tim said, the cherry on the cake is only worthwhile if the cake in the first place is is good. So um, when Newcastle need a lot of ingredients to stick with the... But yeah, talk me through what you think of Eze for Newcastle. So I think Tim spoke brilliantly. Um, He's probably echoed exactly why we're all working at the same company, to be honest. I think to, to just to expand on that and then to go into Eze, it has become a lot easier, in my opinion, to find good players, um, which Eze is, definitely. I don't think that's, I wouldn't say that's not a challenge, of course it is, but I don't think that's as hard as it once was due to the data-driven focus you can have, the video access. I think it's easier than ever to find good players, but that's not important. That's not what the question ever is from a club. Um, and I think that's what we we knew, but we have found from working in the industry. The question is, can you find a good player that fits the the physical, the technical, the tactical and the mental attributes of what the club are looking for? So if you're asking me what I think of of Eberichirizi, well, I absolutely love Easy as a player. So if you're asking me who would I watch in the who would I most want to watch in the championship on any given Saturday, it's easy. Every day of the week. Um he's a brilliant young player with a very advanced skill set, I think, for his age. 
very mature. Certainly this year he's matured a lot. He's increased his output as well in terms of actual goals and assists. We, we love the underlying XG and XA numbers, but you know if you're talking about two, two traditional football men, then yes, actual output, he has it. Um, so he has the end product as well as a maturity for his age that belies his years. And he has that X factor, the ability to take a ball on the half turn to beat men. Everything really that you would want for a Premier League team. However, to, to expand again on what Tim said about adding a star player or, or improving on your weaknesses, solidity is massively underrated in the Premier League. And there's a reason why you're Sean Dyches. Um, there's a reason why certainly Chris Wilder and Sheffield United this year might not play defensive, but have a good defensive record. It, it, it's because the data balls out that generally, if you, have, if you have a good defence in the Premier League, you have a hell of a chance of staying up. So to answer the question on Eze, I think he's brilliant, but he would not be anywhere near the first name I'd sign for Newcastle, um, given the, this proposed takeover, simply because I think Eze needs certain systems. He either needs to be a number 10 or he needs to be an advanced eight in a, in a three, if you will. So the one playing furthest forward. He's getting better defensively, but he's certainly not there yet. He's certainly not there if you're not dominating the ball uh, and having to play in a low block at times. And he's He's very good in transition because he's quick and he's a good ball carrier. He's an excellent dribbler 1v1. But he's probably not someone you want to play in a direct system because he's not going to make those third-man runs beyond a striker, which is something Newcastle have certainly struggled with this year. Um, that support up to Joe Linton. It, it, you know, it's been, there's been a lot of wing ball carrying from St. Maxime and Almiron. And then the two Longstaff brothers are kind of those tenace, you know, tenacious bitty players that really go box to box uh, as well as having a decent passing range. But they're the guys that try and really sprint up there and support any forward players when they can. And I don't think that that's easy at all. So, you know, if you're saying Steve Bruce is the manager and I, I'm not labelling Steve Bruce as direct. He, he, when he was at Sheffield Wednesday, he played direct, but they were, they were very, very efficient. Um, when he was been at Wigan previously, they played great football. So I, I don't think, I think it's unfair to label a manager as anything, quite frankly. I think some managers certainly have a better philosophy in terms of consistency. You look at Nagelsmann, he certainly plays a, a certain way. Pep, you know, clear example, Klopp, and another one. But I think generally a lot of managers that have had to work their way up the leagues don't have a, a, a single philosophy. They're adaptable, they're flexible. Um, but I don't think that Easy would be one for this Newcastle team. I think Easy's got a big choice actually next, um, not just because of COVID, but I think he needs to pick the right club next. He needs to pick a club where he can develop where he can play minutes, which is vital for him, but also that gives him the the opportunity to play roles and, and areas where he can be effective and that he can grow and, and improve his weaknesses. And I don't think that would be the right move for him next. So I think that's a good example of a of a good player, but not necessarily the right fit. Okay, I, I guess I totally understand what you're saying there, Jay. There was, there was just a couple of things for me that I thought about when I was looking at the Newcastle squad. So the reason that I... I went for for easy for for me, and and this wasn't in any particular order. I wouldn't say he was the primary target, but it was. I felt that they lacked the X factor quite drastically. Um, so Maximum does it now and then. He's, he's you know a really good dribbler of the ball, but I just felt that there wasn't enough creative options in that team overall. And I thought that easy it could be quite a maybe maybe not a, an easy transition, but it, someone that I feel that has the capability to um, adapt to the Premier League and could continue to grow. And that's where I, I thought that he's, his age as well, he's someone that, you know, if you tie him down to a long contract, you could, you, one, you've got you've secured your investment, but if he they, if they performs well, you're looking at a pretty big potential resale value on him as well. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, like I say, I absolutely love Easy. I think he's a brilliant player. I think he'll transition fine. Um, but it, it's also a big ask. You're talking about a club here that are potentially getting taken over with a, a massive amount of wealth behind them. With that wealth will come massive amounts of increased pressure. Um, it's already pressure playing in front of 52,000 fans every week. You know, the Geordie fan base are absolutely incredible. But this is this is where we get into the, the mental side of it. And I don't want to just focus on Easy. You know, there's other players who you approach. Yeah. We're going to talk more, more generically. I think Easy is a fantastic player. I think Easy could probably go and do the, those things you spoke about. I don't think he'd be number one because I don't think he would be the right fit at the right time. That, 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 that's really it for me with Easy. He's probably the right player, but maybe in three or four years' time when that team has become a little bit more possession-based, when that team has become a little bit more dominant and he's looking for that player who can knit things in the final third and be that 
that main you know metronome person like that David Silver type. I think right now what they need is they need a, a much more robust, solid squad in terms of having lots of good players rather than what they have now, which is some players that are probably being forced to play lots of minutes when necessarily that that's not what a top 10 player should look like. And also when they have a team that is based on an awful lot of players who have to dribble the ball up the pitch to get anywhere near their main centre forward, um, you know, with the system that they're, they're currently having to employ, which has been successful. So I think they need to build on that with, with some quite consistent and robust attacking players. Um, and I do think that championship to Premier League transition isn't always easy as well. I've watched a lot of players that have transitioned and although it could be argued that they're domestic, so language isn't going to be a barrier, they understand the culture, it's a very different step up. Um, there's lots of players that have done well, but there's also lots that have dominated the championship and, and quite haven't set foot in the Premier League properly. So it, 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 I think that has to be a lot of considerations, but I'd love to hear what Andy thinks on, on a couple of the other players you mentioned, Gav. Yeah, so I, I guess that's totally fair, Jay. And I think, you know, you mentioned about, um, you know, improving yourself defensively and making yourself solid. And so one of the things that I felt that Newcastle needed was an upgrade at centre-back. And I looked at uh, Nico Elvedi from British Edmonton Gladbach, Swiss centre-back. Tim, do you have any thoughts on that? I think I think he's an excellent player. And I think, um, as you pointed out, it's, it's, it's getting players to leave... Champions League level clubs to come to a new project. So you've you've really got to have a salesman. Um, I'm one of the few ones probably old enough to remember the uh, kind of Kevin Keegan revolution in full. But uh, that that was probably a different time pre Champions League, pre such an established top kind of five or six teams in the league. But that kind of messiah character who could entice all the best talent up to Newcastle and to really kind of get the city behind them and the momentum. And I think a player, another player you mentioned actually, who I think probably would fit in quite well with my kind of reimagined Shearer Ferdinand style front line is Diallo of Mets. Um, I like a, I like a big striker. I think Newcastle with their kind of traditional number nine kind of thing they have going on there would, would really like a, a kind of a target player who's also got kind of movement pace and finishing ability. So if you imagine like a front two of, Diallo and probably Joe Linton playing slightly deeper off him with kind of pace down the wings and crosses coming in. I can imagine like that type of energetic football being something that uh, Newcastle fans would really get behind and really enjoy. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think Diallo is the type of player that Steve Bruce would really like. I think he's he's got the physical uh, capabilities and he's you know he's good in the air and and quite well rounded. Um, does anyone have any other thoughts on Diallo for Newcastle? Yeah, I think, you know, Habib Diallo, obviously, a player at Mets, they scored a lot of goals last season at League Two level, and he's stepped up a level this season at League One and continued scoring. So he's obviously got pedigree as a goal scorer. Newcastle obviously need more goals in the side. If you look at him, you know, in terms of what he would bring to Newcastle's side, he's obviously a player who works hard off the ball. I know his, his defensive duels don't look great, but if you look at the pressures, which is sort of out with a measure of pressing, that they have on FB ref there. He's, he's fifth in the league amongst four players in the attacking third. So I think he would suit Newcastle's system, really. I think he'd offer something different to Joe Linton. If you were to play them up front, I think they'd wear quite well. He is good in the air as well. So, you know, with Newcastle's full backs or wing backs in the 3 5 2 system or 3 4 3 system, bombing on, I think he would add a potent goal threat. So I think, yeah, overall, I think Abid Diallo is ready for a step up in terms of level. I think Mets is a good side, but I think he can play at a higher level. And I think he'd be a good sign for them. So I, I guess just before we move on to sort of any listener questions, do do any of you guys have any sort of overarching thoughts on the players? Am I likely to get Steve Bruce's job if it becomes available? <laughs> no, pr- probably not with the, the wealth they're about to amass. Um, plus, you work for us. No, you're not. Um, no, I, I think, you know, they're, they're, again, I think it comes down to the, the point I originally made. I don't, I'm not saying it's hard. I don't think it's as difficult as it once was to find three good players. You've referenced three very good players. Um, three players that would improve lots of teams in the Premier League. I think there's, you know, that, that's fair, absolutely fair. Certainly three players who are probably going to be better than some of the three players that will get signed this year. You know, I, I think it's just that case of going above that layer of, are they a good player? Can they do this? Does this team need this? To Do they fit? the tactical role, you know, 
of what the system is going to be asking of them. Can they deal with the physical aspect? Can they deal with the technical and tactical? And, and can they deal with the mental? Again, this is Newcastle. You know, this is a club starved of success and they get that big club tag, you know, and some people don't like that, but it is, it's massive. If you've ever been to a game at Newcastle, it's absolutely huge. The stadium's brilliant. You know, the facilities apparently need some, you know, some upgrade in the training ground and whatnot, but this is, you know, 52,000 fans backing it every single week is absolutely massive. The momentum that club could get is huge. Everyone knows this who, who works in football, you know, it's there. So, you have to have a certain mentality to be able to deal with that pressure, especially if if they do get new owners and, and if they do have a lot of wealth to, you know, to go and spend on transfers and wages, then there's going to come a massive amount of increased pressure because everyone's going to be expecting Manchester City Mark II, aren't they? So you have to not only be able to handle the pressure of playing in front of that large of a crowd um, and that demanding of a crowd, you have to be able to handle the fact that you're coming in and, and you're not going to be able to have a season's rest. You know, you're not going to be able to have a season to transition you are instantly going for the top six. You know, the, if they Newcastle go and spend 100, 120 million, 150, maybe 200 mil, the minimum is going to be top six. It's going to be, you know, pushing Europa League places, isn't it? That, that, that's the minimum. They're probably going to want more. So you need players that you know, as Andy said, not only can do the job now, but can transition to that level next. So you're not having to spend another 200 million again in two years. But they also need to be a handle the, the mental side of that, as well as all the other things. So, I think what we've done is, is shown the layers of context of how you have to think a lot deeper um, when you're, we're working with clubs about recruitment. It's not just about have they got good data when you watch the video, are they a good player? As Tim said, you're asking what they can do, you're asking what they can't do. Um, so I, I think that's interesting, but I think we'll probably get into some listener questions that might expand on that if you want to do that, Gav. Yeah, so let's just let's wrap this up for just now. And I guess we'd love to hear any feedback from any listeners when, when you're picking this up on what you would like to see Newcastle do or what you think they could do. Um, but for now, let's move on to the listener questions we received this week, starting with look at Griffin Football, who asked, role or type of player that you've been asked to identify that you've only found very few players who can fill it? Guys, anyone want to take this one? I'm jumping. I'm definitely jumping on this one because I think the guys are going to say the same as me. Um, so I'm going to say the stereotypical, powerful, box-to-box goal-scoring midfielder um, because I think this is one of the hardest things to find in the data. Um, I think this is one of the hardest things to find, even visually, if they're not playing that role already. Um, I, I, you know, I think there's examples of players who you look at in the past and you say, for example, one of the most best powerful box-to-box midfielders the Premier League has seen, in my opinion, is Yaya Torre. Yet he came from Barcelona, where he played a defensive midfield role and hardly ever went, you know, sometimes centre-back. He hardly ever went over the halfway line. So that kind of imagination to see a skill set and to be able to understand that that player can do more than what they're doing now is really needed in that. And I found that, you know, we'll keep these answers short. I found that not difficult as such, but that's the, that's been a challenging one for me when a club says... You know, we really need some goals from midfield, but I want them to be a you know a powerful box to box guy who can do the defensive side but gets in the box as well. That that's quite a challenge to find players, especially on budgets as well. You know, it's quite easy to again to do that and just put out a scatter graph and, and look at data and say these guys do that. But when you're looking to specific budgets, that, that's been a challenge for us, I think. I've got two words that strike the fear into the heart of every recruitment team, and that's proven goal scorer. There are <laughs> They just they just don't exist in the budget of most teams. Most teams have to go for a combination of players who could score goals or have scored goals or maybe haven't scored goals at a higher level and are dropping down. But if you every club will say, "I want a twenty goal a season striker," and they've got to be proven, well, they don't just don't exist. You can't find them in the budget of most teams. It's worse when they ask you to get one for free. Um, but yeah, so proven goal scorers is mine. That that's that that that's actually just that's, that's a great point actually. I, just, I think that's worth saying. I know we're trying to be quick on these, but Tim and Andy have nailed something there. So find me a midfielder that scores goals and does the defensive bits. Find me a proven goal scorer. What what people on the outside need to realise is not only are we recruiting, you know, four clubs to help them. Um, we're also trying to interpret that data and that video back to them with with these kind of you know new data driven analytical models because. If you cannot find somebody who's scoring the goals, but you found somebody who ticks 
nine out of ten boxers, and he's getting in positions to score the goals. We all know the expected goal statistics. Who we'll probably listen to this, but some in football know them but don't fully understand them. I think that's fair. That, that's not a criticism. It's just not their world. So what you have to do is interpret what you see in the data and the video and make it very clear at the, of the strengths and weaknesses of a player. And that's where you, for me, you stake your reputation as a scout or as a recruitment company, which we are. You are saying we are backing ourselves that the data and video say that this guy can score goals, that this guy can, you know, do that box to box job and get in there and, and get the odds, you know, get four or five, six a season and also be a decent defensive player. That's where you really have to have an opinion. You can't just look at data. You can't just look at video and say, yeah, they're a good player. You have to have a very solid opinion with all the information you have at hand of what that player will not only can do, what they might be able to do in a different system, league or style. Um, and I, I think that's where you forge your reputation as a scout. So I think that, that's quite an interesting question. Yeah, I think that's you know really well elaborated there, Jay. And to, to keep the pod moving, so let's go to the question that came in from uh, Jabetz. There's absolutely no way I'm saying what his Twitter handle is. Um, but he asked, uh, regarding player metrics, how do you adjust for the attacking quality of the team they're in to get a fair reflection of their attacking output versus other players' teams in their league. And Tim, I want to position that one to you, please, mate. Okay. Um, I, I question the basis of the question. <laughs> so this is something that I, I occasionally rant on about, is data is, is one thing in football, and I love data, and I'm never going to criticise data. Data is amazing, and it's, it's made a huge difference to football. But I don't think you need to be overly precise with it. So I would never go into the a situation and say actually he's not the 13th best striker he's the ninth best striker if they're in the kind of interesting range we're going to watch them anyway so i would adjust based on the things we've talked about in the past like the physicality of the league the pace of it the style of football his team plays in we always say if there's a good a player putting up good data on a bad team they're worth a look regardless and so it's it's more about adjusting um making sure you don't cast your net too narrowly you want to you want a wide net and you want to catch as many interesting potential players as you can and then you do that kind of final calibration of how good they are by the eye and by watching the video so i I, i'm I'm going to jump there as a data man um as an original data man and say tim tim actually i think tim's been fair um and certainly how we work it in a lot of cases i do think there are some specific things you can do to highlight players that are perhaps not in that top 10, that top 20 category um, for, you know, for goals, for shots, for night, whatever it might be. And I do think there is ways that you can, you can basically relativize the, your data so that players who are on poor teams and performing above average or even well can be flagged better. Um, so we have a couple of models. These are not you know models that are specific to us. Anyone can use them. So you can look at per touch, you know, number of touches, and you can look at actions based on per touches. So, that relativizes it because for a striker who only has 10 touches a game compared to the striker that has 20 touches a game, what's their output? Okay, so if it's the guy who's 10 touches a game, doesn't mean to say he's better. Jamie Vardy, for example, hardly touches the ball, but when he does, it's just normally a shot. Um, you know, but it does give you some context and, it, context and it might flag up some different players to look at. There's also something that, we, again, this is not brand new. It's ideas that have been done before, but we're starting to use it more. Um, it's to look at a con- the percentage contribution of a player to, to their attacking output. So if their team's XG is thus, look at the percentage of XG a player has within that framework. And that again, that, that's not saying that player is better than others. But what it is saying, for example, is that that player is contributing a lot to that team. So it might be worth someone looking at. And I think, for example, in the championship, um, you know, again, modelling Matt Lawrence is working on some of this at the minute. We were looking at this uh, and certainly Corley Woodrow, he's actually got good stats anyway. You'd look at him from his goals alone, but he was a player that has a high percentage of shots taken uh, for his team. So a, a lot goes through him. So if he was a player who was a little bit more under the radar, if he'd not scored the goals, that type of model might flag that player. And I think it's just about giving yourself as many opportunities as you can to basically not miss anyone uh, you know we, we certainly don't do that every time but it, it's something that we have going on going in the background and something we can rely on if needed to, to, to flag up players if we're, if we're not quite sure we're hitting everyone that's a, a really good answer again jay i feel like i'm just saying like that on repeat um but you know li- listening to you guys i think people are gonna hopefully pick up you know and learn from the things that you're all explaining really well and i feel like 
even for me who's who's new to this that I'm picking up so much just from from listening to you contextualize these questions and, and to keep the ball rolling again um Andy I'm coming to you for this one so you spot a technically gifted Japanese fella in the J League but clearly isn't bulky enough for the rigors of English football propose the club sign him and have faith in the strength and conditioning coaches it's a bit of a loaded question this one um so yeah I, I, obviously you've got trust in your coaches but on the flip side it also depends on which club I think you can't, bringing Japanese players into England or you know, even, even you know, the UK in general is quite difficult. You know, you need to. It, not a lot of teams can park a player for two years on loan while you know, while they get that strength and conditioning up and get that experience. You know, you, you know, it, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. You know, you look at Manchester City with Machina. I'm sure Gav's got some thoughts on him. He's gone to Hearts this season. But what I would say is that. You, it's probably very difficult number one to get away paying for non international Japanese players in England anyway. But it's it's quite a it's, it's a sort of short, medium and long term plan for you that you need for them players. So it is quite quite difficult and it depends really which club is buying that player. So it's quite a, I know that's not a great answer, but you know, that's that's it's a hard one really. Gav, what do you think of Machino? Uh I think he's a bit of a flash in the pan, if I'm being honest. I, I find him drift out of games uh, I don't think he particularly likes the, the physical aspects of it I mentioned earlier in, in the pod about the body language the the way a player reacts to being filled or being you know taken out and Machino is not someone that enjoys that side of it at all I think you you know you could have the best strength and conditioning coaches in the world but Machino is not going to be and I'm going to put my hat on it I don't think he's going to be the type of player that will be successful uh, in the Premier League and is likely to go, you know, jump around about on a, a couple of different loans within the City Group or elsewhere, um, before eventually going back to Asia. I would, I would, I really don't see how he can, he can make it in uh, British football based on his spell at heart. Yeah, I, you've nailed it there. I mean, just to just to expand on that from what Gav was saying about there, of kind of you know not adapting to the physicality of the league. That, that the fact that I found interesting with this is. A stereotypical thing of a small or a, a lean or a thin player, if you will. I don't really look at that. That's not physicality for me. Well, it is, some of that is physicality, but I also bring into that aggressiveness. And I, and I want to give an example of this because, the, you know, there's a certain guy who felt we talk a lot on Twitter. And he, this guy really picked this guy up for Brentford, which was Neil Morpé in France. Anyone who watched a lot of Morpé in France saw a small. You know, he's got he's got some width, he's got some build, but a small striker. You're not instantly saying that that's someone who's going to come and be great in the Premier League. You know, not everyone is Aguero, who's small and stocky, who can roll defenders and has an absolute power rocket of a shot. But what Morpé had that belied his physicality was an aggressiveness that suited English football. He absolutely loved a fight. He loved a centre-back trying to rough him up. He absolutely pins them. He scraps. He rats with them. Everything that you want from a centre forward who's going to come and play in the Championship or the Premier League, because that's you're going to have to fight for balls into the channels. You're going to have to fight big nasty centre halves. That thing still does exist in English football. Anyone who thinks it doesn't is just wrong. It's there. You know, ask anyone who plays Burnley, um, and that's a credit to Burnley. So I think that's interesting. You know, I'm saying don't just look at the appearance, the aesthetics of a player. Look at what they do. Look at that data output in their duels. Look at their aggressiveness as well, because. There's lots of different elements for me that can make up that psyche of can someone transition. So I guess the next listener question we got is a bit of a the flip side of that last question. So the the best entry league for English football that's often overlooked by clubs when signing players. Does Tim want to take us in on this one? I will, Daryl. I won't do a cop out answer. I'll give you an actual answer to this question. And my answer, <laughs> <laughs> my answer is Poland. I'm not going to look at data, and uh, I'll leave that to the others. Poland is a league we've watched a lot of in the last year. And I actually think there's it's kind of a slightly missed trick. Um, and talking of kind of players who are slightly scrappy and we think would do well in British football, there was actually a striker, Klimala, who ended up going to Celtic, um, which I think probably jumps back to our, is that the right stylistic choice for Klimala? I'm not so sure because we saw him very much as the Polish Vardy, um, which we called him repeatedly. He's just kind of a, a striker who plays right on the shoulder of the last defender. He used to get the ball played to him kind of around the halfway line and he'd be past the last defender and through on goal. Also kind of really good movement, nipping in front of 
players when there's crosses coming in and getting his foot to it. Very, very Vardy-like. And just as Jay was saying about Mope, he also liked to leave a foot in, which we quite like when we're looking for players coming to the British leagues. Um, so in Poland, yeah, we saw a couple of other players. I won't name them all because some of them are still probably active targets. But there was a midfielder as well. I loved the uh, the Polish Roy Keane, Bartosz Sliz, who's just moved to Legia Warsaw for only a million euro. And he's just an all-action, scrappy, box-to-box, all-sitting midfielder, just chases the ball regardless of positional play. But he's a lunatic like too. It's, it's fun. I love him. <laughs> you want you want a player like that. Not necessarily he's going to stay on the pitch every game because he's quite a, uh, a feisty character with it. But yeah, there's Very so, so many good young players in Poland. So I won't give any away any more names, but those are the two that we really liked recently. Jay, do you have anything to add to that to sort of take it up a level? Uh, well, other than like lunatic isn't a bad thing. Sliz is a very good player. Um, you know, he, again, you just you you need a very specific team to be recruiting him because, as Tim said, positional discipline isn't his forte. Getting the ball, winning it, and then playing is. Um, so you just need to find the right fit for him. I think Poland's a good call. Um, very, very tenacious physical style of playing. I don't mean physical in terms of jewels for the data. Again, you're talking about you know the build of players, the challenges that are going in. Um, the tempo of the game probably is the only difference. It's probably harder to, it's probably easy to say which leagues aren't good for recruiting to the Premier League because there's data that back that up and when we watch the leagues, it's easy to see. France has obviously had a lot of successes um, as well as failures, but you know a lot of successes. And again, I think that's because there was a lot of physical players in France. So even though the tempo of the game might not be there, um, you know the speed of the passing, the technical quality isn't quite there. I think France, you know, physically, the players' mobility and size is, is certainly matched up to the Premier League well. I think probably uh, an interesting one to talk about in, in entry leagues-wise is, is, for me, would be Austria. Um, and, I, and I say this because there isn't that many examples of this, if any, uh, especially into the Premier League. I can see why. We've watched a lot of Austrian football. It, it's like a game of tennis. There isn't much defensive structure. It's it's a lot of attack. You get the ball, we attack. You get the ball, we attack. But I think that, you know, a lot of Premier League games are cagey, but th- there is periods of games that are very transitional. Um, and I, I think a lot of Austrian players are used to a lot of fast transitional football and of a good technical quality. And I think that's a league that's slightly underappreciated, in my opinion. Not, not, not across the board, but certainly there's players there who I feel would would come and be good. Um, they might need to bulk up a bit. There's, there might be a physicality question, but mentally wise, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a league I think could adapt well. And I also think that, that the pace of some of the players that play in that league uh, are quite, you know, are quite adapt, adept at something that would be certainly championship level, if not Premier League. That There is a market there, I think, that is underexploited. Yeah, I, th- I do like... Uh... Austrian league. I remember watching quite a lot of it when uh, Rangers played uh, Rapid Vienna, and I think your uh, summary of it's pretty bang on. But to finish us up in this, what has been a, a bumper episode, we had a listener question which asked, "What attributes do you look for a goalkeeper for a side who use high pressing tact?" What's your thoughts? Well, this is my sort of area of expertise, based on the fact that the first work I ever did in football was a three-month-long project looking at goalkeepers for German football teams. Um, so. This is a really good area where there is still kind of a gap in the market for analytics um, in terms of what data is gathered. Um, Because with the standard kind of data we get from the the Y scouts of this world, you don't really get things like starting positions, which are vital, uh, or do you really get the in-depth data about the ability with the feet of the goalkeepers? Yes, you get like how many passes they made, how long was the average pass. But it's one thing to be able to pass the ball short. It's another thing to be able to play a ball short between two unrushing attackers to kind of start a counterattack. So there's a lot you can do um, with data, but there's also a, a lot you can you can create your own data. And the uh, agency I worked for had a very good model of goalkeeping, which they, they used. And that was recording our own data about basically how comfortable the goalkeepers under pressure, how, yeah, how good was their distribution from the back and all the things you, you want from a, High pressing team, so yeah, it's an interesting area. Can, can yeah. I can I be the uh, can I be the bore here and say I want a goalkeeper who saves shots first? Because... I was just about to say that just to, to quickly jump in, Jay. Uh, I, my thinking on this was if you look at Joel Pereira from Hearts, um, who was described as a 
a high pressing, uh, or sorry, a, a goalkeeper that was used to playing with his feet and was a modern keeper, etc. Um, if you actually look at his underlying uh, data, he's not a very good goalkeeper. Um, yes, he's good at distribution, but his actual, um, I think it was his, um, I think it's post shot XG, I think it's called. Uh, you guys can keep me right on that one, but um, yeah. yeah. He's he's got the worst in the Scottish Premiership, and that's a goalkeeper that's came from Man United um, to Hearts. So yeah, I just wanted to quickly get that in before I forgot. But Jay, carry on. What were you going to say, mate? Yeah, he's perfect. A great example. I, I, I think Andy's nailed. You know, between Andy and Tim, they've nailed it. Tim is is an expert in the goalkeeper scouting region, if you will. Um, he knows what to look for, for, the makeup of a good goalkeeper, and I think that. What he said is very key in terms of metrics that are missed, starting position, that ability to... I think, you know, there is data out there, packing data, that type of... You know, I'm not saying packing could do it, but that type of metric that looks at passes between players or passes that miss out players from playing, those kind of clip balls to to high up the pitch fullbacks and wingers, that, that's certainly a trait you'd want. For me, the, the, the three main... Well, the two main things are shot stopping, because in my high-pressing team, the odds are when you do break my press... Manchester City, for example, this year, their XG against per shot has gone up massively um, because when you do break that press, if it's not as coordinated and not as good, you face high-quality shots because you're not in a low defensive solidity. So I want a goalkeeper that can make big saves when needed. Um, you know, he's a really good shot stopper from from quite high-quality chances and I want someone who makes good decisions because they're going to have to, every now and again, be rushing off their line and I want a goalkeeper who, more often than not, makes that right call. As for the passing, yeah, of course, you want someone who can miss players out and do those clips to the wings. My thought on it is I'd rather have the first two rather than the passing. I want all three for the number one, but I think it's very rare that you get a profile of a player and they hit every single area of that profile, if I'm honest. Um, we found that. That's not just yeah. at lower league clubs or restricted budgets. We found that at clubs with decent budgets as well you're not going to find someone that ticks all the boxes because it's probably the best player in the world in that position. So Exactly. You know. Everyone wants a six-foot-five goalkeeper who can play out from the back, is unbeatable with shots and uh, handsome to boot, but uh, they don't exist for every club in every budget. So I, I would say another thing to look for is high-pressing teams, certainly in England, tend to be the better teams. And I think the clubs who play against the better teams look for a weakness, and that is usually set pieces and crosses. So if you can get someone who is able to cope with high balls into the box as well, then you'd want that. But then that's everything then. So as Jay was saying, you can't have everything. So I just want to say, you know, that I think this has been a great episode. We've had some great insights, some really good listener questions. And to everyone that's been listening, thank you for, for dropping in and checking out the podcast. If you can make sure that you, you know, you give us a review on iTunes, whether that's the five star or, uh, yeah, if you can give us a, a review, uh, a comment, uh, and share it with any friends, it'll really help us grow the, the podcast and its uh, entity. But thank you for tuning in. And guys, we'll be back next week. Jay, do you want to give us a quick overview of what listeners can expect in the future? Yeah, so I, I can't go week by week because basically I'm very unprepared and don't have it in front of me because I have a four-year-old. Um, <laughs> but in terms of topics that we've got coming up, so... We're going to cover the infamous football manager Wonder Kids topic. So we're going to talk about what that is in reality. Uh, does it exist? How do you find them? Or how do we look for them if we are looking for them? Um, what the, the kind of pitfalls are. We're going to look at a performance analysis pod um, as well. So we're not just a recruitment company. We've done a project this week that has been... Oh, a lot of hours per day um, for a club and it involves performance analysis aspects as well as recruitment. So we're going to look at how data can be used for opposition analysis, uh, what, what's key to look at, what might be just a bit of noise and also your own team and a bit of player development is that well. So looking at young players for your own team, of course, sometimes the answer is in-house, not out there. Uh, and then final one that we've got kind of planned is look at recruiting on a low budget which is something that we've become experts at, I think, Tim, isn't it? Um, so I think we're going to look just, at recruiting. I want, to, I want to do the opposite one day. I want to have some money to spend. That'd be great. But, <laughs> yeah. but it'd be nice. It'd be nice. But we've become experts, basically, recruiting on, on, on a very minimal budget, sometimes no transfer fee spend whatsoever. So we're going to look at how you do that and how can you use data in that area and how can you be efficient and, and not just take players that are offered to you by the variance agencies around. So... 
we're going to look at those kind of topics so when, when the, the tweet goes out on the Friday or, or the, the Saturday please do inundate us with questions and please do subscribe and share and it, it's been a, a pleasure doing this I hope you've enjoyed it and everyone stay safe <laughs>